from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, business fans. And good morning, statistics fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm your host this morning for the next two hours, and some combination of myself, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner are here every Wednesday morning live here, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. And thanks to our associate producer, Danielle Bruno, you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud, so you can listen to all of Wharton Moneyball. And of course, you can follow us at at WMoneyball on Twitter, which I've been tweeting a lot this morning about our guests coming up and all about our show. So as I said, uh, I'm here alone this week. Uh, Doesn't mean I'm not here without you, the fans. And so if you want to join the conversation, this would be a great time to have a conversation with me about everything going on in the world of sports, business, and statistics. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'm also fortunate while I'm here in the studio by myself, and I'll be happy to have Shane, Kate, or Adi back in the next few weeks. Um, we do have two guests coming up, as always, here on Wharton Moneyball. We have a guest at 8.30. We have Ty Schalter, who's going to talk to us about the NFL and the big changes that have happened in the NFL. And then in the 9 o'clock to 9.30 slot, we have Ben Alomar of ESPN, who's going to talk to us about all kinds of stuff going on in sports and analytics at ESPN. So again, please call in and join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. So this is during the first half hour of the show. This is always where we talk about what caught our eye in sports. Um, since I knew I was going to be solo this week, uh, I've been watching lots and lots of sports, trying to catch up on lots of things. The first thing that definitely caught my eye was, of course, the Patriots-Steelers uh, NFL game, uh, which was Sunday afternoon at 425. Now, Like many people, I was obviously both surprised by the call. You know, this isn't a uh, rules-based show. We're an analytics and sports show, so I'm not going to talk about whether that was a catch or not a catch, although in my view it was a catch, and I don't understand when he crossed the goal line with the ball, um, why the play's not dead and it's not a catch, but I do understand the rules. Um, I was more thinking of it from a statistical perspective and the amount of leverage or statistical odds that that play changed. And here's what I mean. If the Steelers had won that game, essentially they will have clinched home field advantage. Or I think they would have clinched home field advantage throughout the playoffs. So they're the one seed. It means they don't have to play another playoff game. So let's use the Shane Jensen coin flipping model. That's one less, maybe 50-50 coin they have to flip. So already they've doubled their odds of winning the Super Bowl. And they would have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Now, with the loss... The Patriots are tied with the Steelers, but own the tiebreaker. The Patriots are likely to have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. The Patriots might have fallen, actually, to the three-seed. Had the Patriots lost that game, the Jaguars could have caught the Patriots. The Patriots might now have had to flip, in our statistical terms, an extra coin in the division round, not have home field against possibly the Steelers and the Jaguars, that's what I call an extremely high-leverage statistical event. That one play, the one non-catch, the one non-spike and pick-off in the end zone, and for all you sports fans, it had to remind you a little bit of the Super Bowl with Russell Wilson through the interception to end the game as well. That is what we call an extraordinarily high-leverage moment. Now, of course, the Steelers finished with the Texans and the Browns. Those sound like two wins to me, but who knows? 
The Patriots play the Bills and the Jets. The Bills are still fighting for a lot, but that game is at the Patriots. Um, You would certainly say the Patriots have an opportunity to potentially lose a game. The Steelers, probably unlikely, but who knows, but we'll see. But to me, that's what caught my eye in sports. If that caught your eye again, please call me at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm hosting here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So that's one thing that caught my eye. The other thing that caught my eye was, you know, what has happened in some sense to the Eagles throughout this season? Now, I know I'm all excited. Nick Foles played well through four touchdown passes, no picks, etc. But what happened to the Eagles defense? Why all of a sudden are the Rams, I guess the Rams you can sort of understand, but the Giants, why are all these teams shredding the Eagles for 30 and 35 points? Given a team that was extremely good defensively for the first kind of 10 or 11 weeks of the season, as a matter of fact, if I look at their points allowed of 279, there's only maybe half a dozen teams, obviously not surprising to all you NFL fans, the Vikings are a better team defensively. What would shock many of you, which shocks me, just looking at this, the Chargers have less points allowed. The Jaguars, we know, are probably the top defensive team in the NFL this year. They only have 209 points allowed, much less. And then maybe there's one other team. The Rams have a few less points allowed than the Eagles. But the Eagles were a top defensive team, and now they've been shredded the last week for 30-some-odd points. So that concerns me. Um, I'm not a believer that uh, uh, that the Eagles uh, will be able to— uh, Uh, Nick Foles will be able to take us through by scoring 30, 40 points a game in the playoffs. I don't know if that caught your eye, but it certainly caught my eye in sports. And um, I'm excited that the Eagles are going to have at least a bye week. They're looking good for home field, although they better win their last two games because I don't think they want to go to Minnesota to play a playoff game. And again, those are two definitely high leverage games as well. Um, Another thing that caught my eye, actually, it relates also to the Patriots-Steelers game, was the, um, you know, about Tom Brady, and not just his performance and excellence, but it made me start to think about, you know, I started, I created now a list for the major sports, and I started to think, I, this is what I have in my notes, I'm calling it, Who Can Break Father Time? And so what I've done for myself, and maybe I can get my producer Matt Datz to put up a poll here on Twitter for us, um, I've listed the following six sports, and I've listed to myself people that I think who have the have been the greatest breakers of father time in those or mother time in this case because there are women on this list as well um, for these sports. So I've got the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, golf, tennis, and the NHL. And again, this would be a great thing for you to either tweet to us at W Moneyball or to call in at one eight four four Wharton. And who's your favorite? I broke father time or mother time type of issue. So here are my favorites. So let's start with the NFL. The first person, of course, I had to, since I was watching Tom Brady, I had to say Tom Brady. Um, Again, this is a 40-year-old guy playing football at an extraordinarily high level. In many statistical ways, he's playing as well as ever. He says he wants to play another five to seven years. Um, I'm not the one that's going to tell him he can't play another five to seven years. Um, But I guess all the training, the bariatric chamber he uses for oxygenation and everything else has played a great role, but you'd have to put Tom Brady on your NFL list. Here are four others that came to my name, to my uh, to my mind. Uh, two would probably come to everybody's mind, the other two less so. I mean, Brett Favre. Brett Favre was an extraordinarily effective quarterback, uh, 
both obviously for the Packers late, but then uh, once he moved to the Vikings, although that one pass against the Saints probably cost them the Super Bowl, going to the Super Bowl, but Brett Favre would have to be on that list. Warren Moon would have to be on that list, another quarterback who played well into his 40s, I think maybe even 43, 44. Um, I'm pretty sure I've seen Warren Moon lately. I'm pretty sure Warren Moon might still be able to play today if he didn't have to get hit. Um, from my childhood, or even this is pre-Eric Bradlow childhood, George Blanda, I'm pretty sure I'm still younger than George Blanda was when George Blanda stopped playing in the NFL. And again, he was a kicker, a, a uh, quarterback, but George Blanda played until he was like 90 years old. And then finally, but last but not least, I got to give some props to the kickers. How about Adam Vinatieri? I mean, Adam Vinatieri is, I believe, he's 44 years old. He's still pretty much the best kicker in the NFL. People forget that, you know, he was on those original Super Bowl teams with Tom Brady and everything, and he wasn't a rookie then, or he might have been a rookie back then. But that's 17, 18, 19 years the guy has played. So to me, in the NFL, my poll would be Tom Brady, Brett Favre, Warren Moon, Adam Vinatieri, and for those old-timers like me, George Blanda. And... I'm not sure I need to rank them. All I'm saying is these were all great individuals. There may be others. I'm sure I'm missing tons and tons and tons of different players. But those were my NFL father time breakers. I guess since I'm here and I, you know, I, our professors are paid to give our opinion, I got to give my all-time favorite. I'd probably have to go with Warren Moon. Um, not that Warren Moon ever won a Super Bowl, but to me, Warren Moon, um, again, I think he could have. Uh, he could still play today. He looked great the last time I saw him. He would probably be the one I thought who had the most left in the tank. But that's you know he was also forty four. Let's see what Brady has left in three or four. And as thanks to my producer Matt Datz, uh, apparently the poll is now out at W Moneyball for just the NFL. Please go on. Tell us who you think has broken the most father time in the NFL. Let's now move to another one of my favorite sports, um, the NBA. Lots and lots of names could come to mind in the NBA, but here are the ones that came to my mind. First, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, obviously, Kareem played until he was in his 40s. He won a championship with the Lakers, I believe, when he was 38 or 39. He'd have to be on the list. Um, his One of his, I guess, contemporaries, someone who played against him for a large number of years, uh, towards the end of Kareem's career, really, Robert Parrish for the Celtics. Um, I'm pretty sure Robert Parrish paid, you know, again, uh, he might be, I might be younger than Robert Parrish was when Robert Parrish retired. So he was obviously a great player. Then I have to give my props to the two Utah Jazz greats, you know, John Stockton and Carl Malone. Both of them were, you know, playing well into their late 30s. I'm pretty sure Carl Malone was, you know, kept chasing the ring until his 40s, early 40s. And then another one which might shock a bunch of you, but just you don't think of him as that old, but he's played so many minutes, is LeBron James. And people talk statistically, we've talked about it here on Wharton Moneyball for the last few weeks, LeBron James may be having his best season ever, efficiency-wise, in every advanced statistic. His three-point shooting is up, his field goal percentage is up, his player efficiency rating is up, um, his assists are up, everything is up about LeBron James. And you say, well, Eric, what do you mean? He's only 33. Yeah, but if you look not at age... But at minutes, I mean, I think we, I remember talking about this last year on Wharton Moneyball. He's now played more minutes in his career, for example, than Michael Jordan played in his entire career. And this is age 33, LeBron James. And so to me, for the NBA, my five are Kareem, Parrish, LeBron, Stockton, and Malone. Now, eventually, I might put LeBron as the top of that list. Um, not for now. Um, I'm going to put 
Kareem at the top of that list just because of how he was still, you know, even once they had James Worthy and Magic Johnson, etc. later on in his career, he was probably still at least the number two option on the Lakers. And as you know, um, I remember from my childhood when they used to have these one-on-one games, and I remember watching, this was after they were both retired, I remember Kareem playing Dr. J in a game, and they were both, let's say, 40, 45, or 50 at the time, and Kareem beats Dr. J easily, and the one thing they always remember is you can't teach height. And so, uh, and Father Time doesn't take away height. So Kareem was seven two. He's still seven two. Um, and so, to me, my NBA poll would be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Robert Parrish, LeBron James, John Stockton, Karl Malone. Um, all of those people seem to have broken Father Time, and all very interesting. The MLB, which is next, is a much much harder one because, you know, if things vary tremendously by position. They vary by the era of the game, how many innings someone's played, both as pitcher and as offensive player. The four that came to mind, three of them I think will come to lots of people's mind, but the first one has to be the winner. I don't think there's any dispute whatsoever. I'm hesitant to say it. I'd rather have you call in on Wharton Moneyball at one eight four four wharton one 942 But to me, the undoubted winner in the NFL, in the MLB, is Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan was dominant as a pitcher, still a power pitcher into his mid-40s. Um, you know, I think had 5,700-plus strikeouts, was still striking out people at a greater than 9K per nine-inning rate even later on in his career. But Nolan Ryan would definitely be on my baseball list. Um, uh, Ted Williams would be on my list. I remember I think Ted Williams hit a home run in his last at-bat. I think he batted well over 300 in his last season, so I think Ted Williams would be on that list. Um, regardless of whether one wants to think about uh, performance-enhancing drug use, etc., uh, Roger Clemens would definitely need to be on that list, another power pitcher who pitched well into his mid-40s. And the last one, of course, another person who has some a checkered pass, but for different reasons, would be Pete Rose. I mean, we have so we have the all-time strikeout leader, what I consider the greatest hitter of all time, Ted Williams, Roger Clemens, who by most statistical measures, uh, maybe the only other person you'd put on that list is Greg Maddox, the greatest pitcher of the last 20 years, and of course, Pete Rose, the all-time hit leader. So all four of them would be my breaking of father time. Although Pete Rose and Ted Williams, to me, it would have to be Nolan Ryan, just because he was essentially the same pitcher in his mid-40s as he was in his mid-20s. matter of fact, he might have had better control in his mid-40s than his uh, mid-20s. So again, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing Statistics here at the Wharton School. We're here on Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm here running solo this morning, but we'll be having Ty Schalter and uh, Ben Alomar joining me at the 8.30 and 9 o'clock hours, respectively. And of course, we're live every Wednesday morning morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, and normally there'll be some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, Cade Massey, and Adi Weiner. So now let's move on, and hopefully lots of you are responding to our poll on Morton Moneyball about the NFL. I'll be interested to hear from my producer, Matt Datz, about your opinions. I'm now going to move on to golf, um, and I'm so glad. Actually, this is one of those times I'm glad that Shane and Cade and Adi aren't here, because they always razz me for spending too much time on golf. I can't help it. I love golf. I've loved the sport of golf. I've followed the history of golf for an extremely long time. I love golf. Um, And so to me, I have five players on my list. Um, I'm sure a number of you are saying, well, of course, Jack Nicklaus is going to be on Eric's list. And you're right. I mean, Jack Jack Nicklaus did win the Masters at age 46. So he's definitely on the list. Um, The second person is what I still consider, even though he didn't finish it, 
I still consider one of the greatest feats of all time, Tom Watson at the British Open. Uh, Tom Watson had a seven-foot putt or six-foot putt to win the British Open at age 59. That would have been, and I consider, one of the greatest feats of sports. Um, Another player that a lot of people wouldn't think about, and unless you're a golf fan, you might not know him, although he's won many Masters titles, um, is Bernard Longer. For those of you that follow golf today, uh, Bernard Longer... Uh, is winning senior opens at an amazing rate. He's still very competitive when he plays the PGA Tour, so he'd be on my list. Phil Mickelson has had, you know, he's now in his late 40s, uh, still competing highly, won the British Open a few years ago. And then, of course, this leads to the question, um, Tiger Woods. You know, now that Tiger Woods is 41, I think soon to be 42, I think his birthday might be December 30th. Why I know that, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure his birthday is December 30th, 1975. So I think he's going to be 42 this year. Does Tiger Woods have another comeback in him? I would have to say for my pick, even though Nicholas, Watson, Mickelson, and Woods were better golfers maybe than Bernard Longer, I'd have to put Bernard Longer at the top of my list. And thanks to my producer, Matt Datz, um, he added someone to my NFL Um, Matter of fact, according to at M.A. Trueblood, um, adjusting for position, Jerry Rice had more good seasons. We can define good in lots of ways, maybe standard deviations above the mean. Um, Jerry Rice had more good seasons after age 33 than any wide receiver ever. That's definitely an omission. Uh, Jerry Rice certainly played until he was 40. As a matter of fact, there are always rumors that even I'm going to say Jerry Rice is 50. He may be older than that. Um, A lot of people say he could still play today. Uh, I don't think he wants to take the hits. He might be able to run routes today. I'm not sure he wants to take the hits today, but Jerry Rice is a great addition uh, to the NFL list. Um, Let me move on to my last two sports, and then I'll move on to other things that have caught my eye in sports. Uh, Jerry Rice is 55. Wow, that makes me feel so young. Thanks, Matt. Matt Matt just posted that Jerry Rice is 55. Um, Great. I have a lot more years to go, so that's that's making me feel good. Um, I'm now going to move on to a sport that a lot of people thought I might have started with, given what's happening in the sport today, which is tennis. So there are lots of people you could pick in tennis. But here's the five that have kind of caught my eye. You have to start with uh, Venus and Serena Williams. Um, I, I, there's probably nobody bigger fan than the Williams sisters of me, uh, than me on the planet. What they've done is incredible for the sport. Um, you know, Venus didn't win a major in 2017, but wow. I mean, Venus came really, really close. And and given she has, I think it's, I will probably mispronounce this, Shorjan syndrome, and given how much, how long she was away from the sport and her ability to come back, I think that was incredible. Obviously, Serena Williams is the greatest female champion, maybe the greatest champion in any sport of all time. Um, and so Serena and Venus would have to be high on your list. Of course, given what he did in 2017, Roger Federer would have to be extraordinarily high on your list. I mean, now to get to 19 majors, to win two majors in 2017 was incredible. I don't see any reason why he can't win one in 2018, assuming he stays healthy and still takes his strategy of not playing that many tournaments. And we've had many, many guests here on Morton Moneyball talk us talk to us about the importance of rest. I think it's certainly important when someone's, I believe, Federer is 36. Um, that's really important. 
Of course, now closer to my age and my childhood, we have Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi was one of those players who played until his late 30s and was highly competitive. And then, of course, you know, someone a little older, well, considerably older than me, but certainly I remember watching him from my childhood was Jimmy Connors. You know, his great run in the U.S. Open, I'm going to say in 1991, something like that. It was probably 1991 where he was in the U.S. Open semifinals at age 39, lost to Jim Courier in the semifinals that year. So to me, for tennis... Uh, Serena and Venus, Roger Federer, Andre Agassi, Jimmy Connors. I'm sure there are many other people that have played late in their careers. Martina Navratilova, I shouldn't forget her. Navratilova might also be, matter of fact, uh, now that I think about it, Navratilova would certainly rival Serena and Venus as someone who has played great uh, late in her career as well. So that's my tennis. And last but not least, only because I don't follow hockey as much as other sports, uh, let me talk about briefly about the NHL. Three names come to mind, and I apologize to all my Canadian friends, all to, all to all of my hockey aficionado friends. Um, to me, the three names that come to mind are Gordie Howe. I'm pretty sure Gordie Howe did play into his 50s. Um, Super Mario, Mario Lemieux, was great until his early to mid-40s. I have a vague recollection of him playing at age 43, 44. And Marc Messier, um, to a tribute to my childhood when the Rangers finally won a Stanley Cup title, I'm going to say in 95 or 96, uh, with Marc Messier as, as the captain of the team. Um, he wasn't extraordinarily old then, but certainly played uh, well into his career. So those are my six, if you'd like, NFL, NBA, MLB, golf, tennis, and NHL father time stats. Um, if you asked me which one, you know, if I had to pick a number one person of all time to kind of break the mold, it, it just maybe because it's salient because it's recent. And, you know, I'm sure Cade Massey would tell me about my saliency bias and all of this other stuff and recency bias. It would have to be in tennis and it would have to be Serena, Venus or Federer just because they're breaking the mold of what we would expect. And thanks, yeah, uh, Matt Datch just texted me or put up on my screen that Gordie Howe played until he was 52. Well, I'm not anywhere near 52, so I'm going to tell you right now. Maybe I'm, I'm, And by the way, I happen to be going to a skating rink today, this afternoon. So maybe this is my opportunity to get my uh, hockey legs back on. Maybe you'll see Eric Bradlow back on the ice sometime soon. But either way, uh, I hope you enjoyed our, our father time discussion. And please feel free to tweet us at WMoneyBall. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, in the next few weeks if you have somebody else that I left off my list. And, of course, you can join the conversation here on Wharton Moneyball at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And tell me who your favorite father time person is as well. Um, let me now transition to kind of some other stuff that have caught my eye in sports. And the next one is one of these interesting statistical issues. And the, uh, it has to do with the Houston Rockets, who are currently the number— I mean, if you believe on—if you believe in a record, win-loss record is being the best barometer, but we'll talk about that in a second. The Houston Rockets are the number one team in the NBA, but that's not what caught my eye in sports. Um, what caught my eye is that with Chris Paul—so you may remember they made a trade with the Los Angeles Clippers this year. They got Chris Paul, so now they have the two-headed monster, if, if you'd like, of James Harden, Mr. Triple-Double, and Chris Paul— um, the Rock, he, Chris Paul was injured part of the season, has not played every game with the Rockets, but he has played 15 games with the Rockets. They are 15-0 with Chris Paul in the lineup. Let me say it again. The Rockets have played 15 games with Chris Paul, and they are 15-0 in the lineup. One of those was early in the season. Then they've won their last 14. Now, I want to give everybody a sense of how possibly statistically rare that is. 
Now, the first assumption I've made, and this you, we could absolutely debate, is that these games are independent of each other. So I'm basically going to take the probability of a win, of, and let's say in the first game, the second game, the third game, the fourth game, the fifth game, dot, 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 up to the 14th game, and just multiply them by each other. Now, that may not be true. Um, if you believe in uh, non-independence, like the likelihood of winning a game goes up if you've won the previous game, okay, so maybe it goes up a little bit. Maybe you can't just treat these as independent events, but for simplicity, I'm going to treat these as independent events. By the way, it'd be very easy to modify this to say, what's the probability of a win given you've won? What's the probability of a win given you've gone win-win in your past two games? And so on and so on. In some sense, this is what we would call in statistics, what's the degree of this of the non-stationarity or what's the degree of what's called the Markovian structure? In other words, how far back do we have to go to where a events become independent. So let's assume independence for a second, and let's pretend, and this is an erroneous assumption, that the Rockets are a 0.5 chance to win every one of those games. You'd say, well, 0.5 raised to the 14th power, so that means if they go 15, 14 wins in a row, each with a 0.5 coin flip probability, that's 1 in 20,000. And we'd say, wow, that's really rare. Well, remember, that's assuming independence, and it's assuming 0.5. Let's, so 1 in 20,000 events are very rare. We don't see those very often at all. This is kind of a 1 in 4 or 5 standard deviation type of event. But let's say their winning percentage is 0.6. So now we go to 0.6 to the 14th. Well, now it's a 1 in 2,000 event. Now, 1 in 2,000 events, I'm not going to risk my life on a 1 in 2,000 event, but 1 in 2,000 events happen. But you, you might be saying here on Morton Moneyball, well, Eric, the Rockets are winning like 90% of their games. Why are you assuming 60%? Okay, let's now go to 70%. Let's say it's 0.7 to the 14th. So again, they win 14 consecutive games at a 0.7 win probability. Now it's 1 in 150. 1 in 150 is rare, but I don't know. It's just a little less than 1%. That's not that rare. Then let's say, Eric, how about if it was 0.8? Well, 0.8 to the 14th is 1 in 25. So now all we're talking about is if you have a team whose true strength is 800, there's a 4% probability that they would go on a 14-game winning streak, assuming they're independent. 4% is low, but it's not that low. I mean, you've basically gone from like lottery-like odds to, you know, 4%, 5% events, uh, event things happen all the time. And so, again, um, it caught my eye. It caught my eye because they've won 14 straight, but it also caught my eye because Chris Paul is obviously undefeated. And now we could all have a discussion about whether he actually, you know, can he turn the tide? Can Houston catch Golden State in the West? I'm still not a believer of that, but they have a chance. And, and thanks to Matt Datz, again, my producer, he put up on the thing uh, on the screen here that Chris Paul is averaging 17.7 points, 9.3 assists, shooting 48% from the field and 90% from the free throw line. What will be interesting is, is it possible, I, don't, I know this has never happened in the NBA, could Chris Paul and James Harden both average 10 assists a game? I don't think so. There's just not that many assists to go around. But they are, they're probably both averaging eight, nine assists a game, which is truly remarkable. The other thing that caught my eye in basketball, um, and we talk about this on Wharton Moneyball, but I talk about this in the Wharton classroom all the time, 
is what's called the Herfindahl Index. And what the Herfindahl Index represents is the degree of concentration in a particular industry. Now, I'll talk in a second about how this relates to sports. But what I mean by the Herfindahl Index is, let's imagine, let's take a simple example. Let's imagine I have two NFL teams. Let's take NBA, because I'm going to talk about the NBA. Let's imagine you have two NBA teams, and both those teams win half their games. Well, then the way you compute the Herfindahl Index is you take .5, you square it, so now you're at 0.25, and you do that for both teams. So 0.5 squared plus 0.5 squared, that's equal to 0.5. The Herfindahl index would be a half. That would say the teams have equal win percentages. Let's take another example. Let's imagine that they have 0.9, 0.1. So one team's a 0.9, and one team's a 0.1. Well, then 0.9 squared is 0.81. 0.1 squared is 0.01. Then the Herfindahl index is 0.81 plus 0.01, which is 0.82, which is much higher, meaning a lot of the concentration of wins is actually going into uh, just those, uh, just into one team. Well, in the NBA this season, here's what caught my eye. We have five teams. I, I'm, I've never seen this. We have five teams with over a 700 winning percentage right now in the, in, in the, in the NBA. Here they are. I mean, four of them won't surprise you. The Celtics, the Cavs, the Rockets, the Warriors. I've left one out. I'll see. I'll ask my producer, Matt Datz. Matt, you can type. You can't cheat. Who is the fifth team in the NBA that has a 700 winning percentage? It's not the Celtics, the Cavs, the Rockets, or the Warriors. You, you here on Wharton Moneyball. No, it is not the Detroit Pistons, Matt. That is not the correct answer. Um, you could uh, tweet us at Wharton Moneyball if you know who that fifth team is that has over a 700 winning percentage. But let me also comment while you're thinking about it here on Wharton Moneyball. Um, there are also 11 teams. This is what's shocking to me. Now, of course, every you know the things have to average 50%. Someone wins, someone loses every game. There are 11 teams under a 400 winning percentage. I'm going to say that again. There are 11 teams with an under 400 winning percentage. So what this suggests to me is there are a bunch of really bad teams. There are five, six, seven really good teams. They're soaking up lots of the wins. They're soaking up, in some sense, they're making this Herfindahl index high, meaning if you want to think about it, there's this bimodal distribution of 700 teams and 300 teams. Literally imagine two humps, one hump at 700 winning percentage, one hump at like a 350 winning percentage, and if you graph the win percentages, it would look like a camel. It would look like a camel's back. You'd actually, sorry, not a camel's back. You'd see it. It would be a two-humped camel. You'd see one hump at 700 and then another hump at 400. And for those of you, by the way, that want to know who that fifth team is, it's the Toronto Raptors. And so we have the Celtics, the Cavs, the Raptors, the Rockets, and the Warriors all over 700. We have 11 teams under 400. And to me, that's just absolutely shocking. So those are the things that have caught my eye in sports. Uh, it started with the Patriots-Steelers game, um, and that led to what I would call a high-leverage moment. That led me to think about Tom Brady and Father Time, and so it led me to my NFL, NBA, MLB, golf, tennis, and NHL Father Timeless. And my producer, Matt Datz, has told me we'll go over the results of the uh, NFL poll at uh, 9.30 after Ty Schalter and Ben Alomar, who will be my guests at 8.30 and 9 o'clock, respectively. That also led me to think about you know streaks in the NBA this year, now about uh, Chris Paul not having lost a game. It also made me think about the probability of the Rockets winning 14 streaks. It made me think about the Herfindahl Index, which we use in business all the time. Matter of fact, that's one of those ways. Let's imagine 
two firms merge? Will it create too much of a concentration? And then the Justice Department will say they'll have monopoly power. This is one of the many ways they look at this. And so this has been a great first half hour here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, Please join us after the break. We'll have Ty Schalter. He's going to talk to us about the NFL and more. So please join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, powered by the Wharton School. I was enjoying the music from Danielle Bruno so much, I literally forgot that I was on the air. Uh, but thanks, Danielle, for the, com- the music getting me back into the spirit here of Wharton Moneyball. Um, we're very fortunate to have a guest with us this next half hour. Uh, Ty Schalter of 538, where he covers the NFL. He's been doing, he's been writing about lots of things lately, but especially about the change in the, if you'd like, the offensive philosophy of the game. So, Ty, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Eric. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Sure. So you've recently written an article, something that you know I've always thought was kind of imbalanced in the NFL, which was kind of the amount of passing versus running going on. Could you talk to our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball um, just about what you found and what you've kind of find, found interesting about how the game has changed in the last couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you go back to basically the NFL lockout, you know, there's been a trend for a long time towards more passing, more passing yards, more passing touchdowns, more first downs via passing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you got to the lockout, um, and really Cam Newton came in and threw 422 yards in his first game, breaking the rookie record, went on to throw over 4,000 yards, breaking the rookie record. Drew Brees threw for over 5,400 yards, breaking Dan Marino's single-season mark, which had stood for 27 years. And so did Tom Brady. He also broke that mark. And Matthew Stafford and Eli Manning came within striking distance. And you know, just a huge amount of passing and league-wide average per team per game. There's a big jump in 2011, then it went up in 2012 and up in 2013. And for most of my sports writing career, I've been writing about this historic passing explosion. And this year, I was looking at some of the numbers, and I realized they've across the board, fallen off the map, both in terms of run-pass balance, how heavily teams are passing, how effective they are when they're passing, the scoring, all of it is back down basically to 2010 levels, as if this whole giant passing bubble never happened. Now, what, so do, that was the, yeah, you know, what, what do you think caused that? I mean, do you th- I mean, is there any chance, since we're here on Wharton Moneyball and we're a sports and analytics show, is there any way that not me personally, but me in the field of analytics could possibly have any have had anything to do with this? Well, you know, certainly there's this drive. You know, if you look throughout the NFL, there's a few trends that really are permanent. One of them is fewer interceptions uh, because turnovers are such a big impact on the game, and the interceptions are one that you can control a lot more than fumbles, both in terms of how often they happen and which team recovers them. So, uh, teams have been trying to maximize space at the college level in the air raid offense these sorts of uh, you know spread and shred type offenses that coaches have used to level talent gaps well not only are some of these quarterbacks and and receivers you know coming up through these systems and getting to the nfl and coaches you know aren't quite sure what to do with them uh coaches also see that and go you know wait a minute maybe that could work at the professional level sean payton has, and his New Orleans Saints, who I really kind of pegged the piece around, set the tone for this 2006, 2007, for the 10 years that Sean Payton uh, was 
head coach of the New Orleans Saints up until this year, they finished first or second in passing attempts eight out of ten times. This year, they are at the time of the writing, they were 19th in passing attempts. And it's interesting because I found an article in 2011. It was, we're halfway through the 2011 season, and everybody is freaking out about this passing bubble, this passing explosion. What's causing this? And Peter King at Sports Illustrated had Sean Payton as part of an expert roundtable to, to, you know, what's going on? Why this passing bubble? And Sean Payton said, well, hey, look at what, who just won the Super Bowl, Green Bay Packers. They did it by throwing and throwing and throwing and playing good defense. And they really kind of broke the formula for how you win in the NFL. So that would be a good place to start. Ultimately, the NFL is a copycat league. So when you have people looking at what plays give us the most success, what types of plays give us the most leverage over the opponent? What types of plays maximize our efficiency? Um, and, and how do we, once we have that advantage, how do we press that advantage? It makes sense that teams can continue to put multiple options on the field to try and maximize space, minimize mistakes, and, and attack defenses with as many options as possible. Then do you see, so again, uh, this is Wharton Moneyball, and this is Eric Bradlow hosting today. We're here with Ty Schalter from 538, where he covers the NFL. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Ty, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Ty, um, by the way, I think both you and I probably agree, if you had Ingram and Kamara, you might run the ball and do more of that, too. <laughs> uh, but let me ask you a more a broader question. You actually just talked about efficiency protecting the football, etc. Do you see this as the era of the multi-purpose backs, the Ingrams, the Kamaras, on Kansas City, the, the, the Hunts and the Hills? I mean, do you see this as, you know what, I just need a guy, if I can throw a guy the ball five yards right over the line of scrimmage, and you know what, he can break two or three tackles and make guys miss, it's low risk, it's better than a run, it could turn into a big play opportunity. Do you see maybe this becoming the new copycat in the NFL? Yeah, possibly. And what's interesting is I talked about it a little bit in the piece. I didn't go quite as much into it as I could have. Uh, but the Atlanta Falcons last year were last in the NFL in shotgun utilization rate. That's really something I talk about, too. You know, the explosion of shotgun. Uh, in 1996, the league average use of shotgun was 7%. 13 teams used no shotgun whatsoever. Uh, and then by 2011, the league-wide average was 41%, with a high of 68%. This year, or I'm sorry, last year, the average was 68%. Chip Kelly set the high mark at 99% of plays using either shotgun or pistol. So the Atlanta Falcons really kind of set this trend going back with Freeman and Coleman and, and getting guys that can make plays in space and the interesting thing about this is what we're seeing is the cat and mouse game is already in effect, is that defenses have been adjusting to this passing explosion. Um, and this is, this is where analytics and data are still, you know, this isn't quite where, you know, soccer is. It isn't quite where basketball is with the heat maps and the positioning data. Um, we use ES, ESPN true media data, but, you know, what you're defining as a defensive back, what you're defining as a linebacker, what you're defining as a safety by position, by roster number, by where they're lining up on the field, that's a little bit hazy right now. One thing we do know is that teams are using more nickel and dime than they did, you know, five years ago, and they're using more big nickel, more big time with multiple safeties on the field, you know, three safeties on the field as opposed to three cornerbacks and two safeties. It gives teams more flexibility, and you can cover those intermediate zones that teams have been using a lot more. But that brings us back to your question, which is 
how do you maximize your matchups in space? When you get those Kamaras with the ball in their hand, with a full head of steam, two yards past the line of scrimmage, and no defender is closer than three yards to them, that's a huge advantage for an electric running back like Kamara or like a Freeman or a Cream Hunt or anybody else, you know, Le'Veon Bell, you name the back. If they've got the speed and the power out there in space, it almost doesn't matter what their size is because they've got that advantage and they've got uh, linebackers back on their heels. Let me ask you another question. Just, it's, I don't know if you've looked at this data. Since we're an analytics show, I have to ask. How about another possibility that's created this data? And again, I have no idea whether this is true. Maybe you do. Let's imagine that we say there are some really bad teams in the NFL— a lot of teams, are, which we both agree with, we don't have to look at the yeah. advanced analytics to know that, that um, a lot of teams are getting up by big scores. Yeah, you run, you pass first, get ahead, and then the reason why the run percentage is up is because teams are having 14 and 21 point leads and then they're grinding out the clock. So have you looked at all at what I would call the within game run versus pass mix and to see you know which one are they doing? Or has somebody looked at that? Um, you know, I'm not sure that, that, that that's been looked at for me. I look, I look at these numbers and this data and, you know, for one thing over the past couple of, over the past couple of years, actually plays have been plays per game have been dipping the sort of Chip Kelly copycat thing when he came in in 2012 and it was supposed to to re-revolutionize everything. The number of plays per game spiked then. So plays are a little bit down. Passing plays are significantly down. Uh, you know, running plays are holding about steady. So whole, so running is actually taking up a bigger percentage of the whole than it was a few, couple, three years ago. Um, and, you know, honestly, the volatility of games. I've been asking Brian Burke at ESPN to release this <laughs> for a while. They have it internally. It's what they call the excitement index, which is win probability changing from down to down, how much that swings back and forth and back and forth. Because certainly we've seen some exciting games where, oh, it's, you know, 90% this way, and then two plays later, it's 80% this way, and then, oh, then it's a pick six back the other way, so it swings back 100%, so that swing to swing to swing, add that up. In theory, that's how exciting the game was in the game's last few minutes. I believe that that is up because of the number of plays, because of the volatility. I believe that's been up throughout the middle part of this decade from previous years. Maybe that's tailing back off again. Maybe we're seeing teams able to close out games more. Maybe we're seeing less late-game volatility because we're seeing fewer plays, fewer trials uh, You know, for some of those teams trying to press that offensive advantage. And maybe teams' defenses have adjusted to the point where you know that running the ball, that strategy, because yards per carry has been trending up for quite some time as teams leave more and more and more space for running backs. Um, I do believe it's a, it's a full game effect and that the teams that are able to run effectively have a big advantage over teams that are you know dropping seven into coverage, um, dropping eight into coverage, trying to contain the short and intermediate passing game. And you know if you look, the Saints, yes, they hit on Alvin Kamara, but they also signed Adrian Peterson. They also signed guard Larry Warford. You know, I believe they, they actually tailed off on shotgun last year as well. I noted in the offseason at 538, one of the most significant things might be the signing of Adrian Peterson because it seemed like the Saints were tailing way off on shotgun and running more at the end of last year. This year, Sean Payton in the offseason seems to have intentionally doubled down on that approach 
So this feels like an intentional whole game strategic change for me. Also, Kyle Shanahan, what he did in Atlanta, trying to replicate it in San Francisco, having that running attack and being able to build off the play-action passing game. We're getting back to the thing that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the idea of balance, the idea of being able to beat defenses two different ways, the idea of getting the run and the pass back in sync um, really still makes a team hard to defend. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow. We're here on Wharton Moneyball uh, talking to Ty Schalter from 538. If you want to join the conversation here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also follow us on Twitter at at WMoneyBall. So, Ty, besides the uh, kind of drop in passing, increase in running, uh, anything else before we get into I want to spend about five minutes with you talking about the NFL playoffs and stuff going forward, but um, anything else that has kind of caught your eye as kind of general trends in the NFL that are of interest to you? Yes, certainly we're talking constantly about penalties. And I looked this up this weekend because I noticed that when we went to per-drive stats, the yards and the plays and the points weren't quite as down as they were overall. And I was looking for a reason why. One of those reasons is penalties. We're on track for more penalties this year, for more yards, for far more first downs. Uh, than in recent years. We're looking at an all-time high of first downs by penalty. And I think some of the unnecessary roughness, defenseless receiver stuff, uh, some of the increases in holding, pass interference, those sorts of things, I'm trying to track that down right now. You may see a piece soon at 538 talking about the role of penalties in getting teams down the field in ways that don't involve X's and O's. So what do you think that this is something besides, you, well, I can imagine two things. I'd love to get your opinion on it. One is, do you think teams will start coaching towards drawing penalties, and maybe they do already, and play calling towards that? You know, my colleague Shane Jensen has always said the Joe Flacco offense is throw the ball 50 yards down the field and hope for a penalty on some Baltimore yeah. wide receiver. Um, so one yeah. is, do you think uh, teams will start coaching towards that? Or two, do you think we will see, because as you know, the fans hate the penalties, they hate the slowing down of the game. Do you see the NFL, on the flip side, going to the officials during the offseason and say, look, you guys are calling it by the letter of the law, but you got to back it off a little bit. Who do you think is going to react more, the teams coaching towards it or the NFL to kind of tamper it down? Yeah, it's a great question because I think it's just starting to dawn on the NFL that the TV product and the in-game experience is nowhere near what it was 20, 30 years ago, that the generation of fans, my generation, our generation, uh, were hooked on a really compelling experience of fast and fun football. And our kids and uh, you know, kids these days are not getting that same experience because there's so much lawyering, so many yellow hankies, and this is up even you know over five, six, seven years ago. So if we go to the last time there were really a ton of penalties, it was the Thai law rule in 2003, which turned into you know, enforcement in 2004 and 2005. A lot more penalties were thrown. But not as many of them were for first downs, not as many of them extended drives as what's going on right now. That was the last time we really saw a refereeing point of emphasis change how teams strategize both before the game and making decisions in the middle of the game. So um, I'll have to look a little bit more to see exactly which penalties are getting called and see if there seems to be coaches coaching towards that or if that's the trend that they're going to go into. Because you know what? The NFL has a lot of off-season priorities, especially in terms of officiating. I don't know that they're going to be able to address all of them. Do you see ever see a day? This is I, I don't think we've ever asked a question of any expert here on uh, Wharton Moneyball about this. Do you ever see a day where the NFL adopts the college rule where a uh, – 
pass interference penalty is not spot foul, but 15 yards, maybe that would have an effect on teams just, you know, launching it down the field? It could. It could. Um, you know, that's always been a point of contention. It's one of the very few differences in the, in the pro and college game. You know, another one is the presence of that targeting rule. There's a lot of a lot of talk that the NFL is going to look at adopting that targeting rule, even though college fans hate it and it's inconsistently applied and it's all the things fans don't like about football right now. So, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, you know, for me, the automatic 15 yards on first down, um, there's, be- there's pluses and minuses to both. But again, you know, the, the passing changes in the late 70s, you know, 1978 rules changes were designed to give us more fun, more passing touchdowns, more aggressiveness. I think the NFL still likes to see that. I, I think NFL te- the NFL still likes to see teams take shots downfield. Even if it's just at the intention of drawing the flag, the fact that teams have to defend that, the fact, the fact that teams are willing to take that chance is still better than, uh, you know, teams – not taking those chances and laying it up underneath. So, Ty, I'd like to now transition to the you know upcoming NFL playoffs. We still have two weeks to go in the regular season, but I think the picture is starting to become clearer. Um, I actually went on to 538, a place you know and love, and yeah. I was looking at the percentages that were on 538 for winning the Super Bowl, and I found something interesting, and I'd like your perspective on it, and then I want to talk about all the potential playoff teams. According to 538, if you took the Pats and the Eagles – those two teams, you'd have to essentially they have half the win probability of winning the Super Bowl, and every other team hmm. combined has the other half. What are your thoughts about that? I'm mean, not asking you to criticize where you work or anything like that. I'm just saying, as someone no. that does analytics, do you think that's? Do you think the Pats and the Eagles are roughly? I mean, it's 46 percent to be precise. But do you think that's about right, or do, or would you take the field? <laughs> You know, um, I think one of the big challenges in football analytics this season has been the rash of quarterback injuries because when you look at season-long strength numbers, those get so wildly thrown out of whack, whether you're talking about, you know, from a starter to a backup to a third stringer, those sorts of things. Like, you know, for right now, the Green Bay Packers – Pro, uh, you know, if you look at Football Outsiders DVOA, they were projecting playoff odds based on simulations and DVOA. Well – how do you project that when you don't know when Aaron Rodgers is going to come back or how much, yeah, <laughs> or how good he's going to be when he comes back? So at one point, I know Football Outsiders was calculating that Aaron Rodgers would come back in 20% of their scenarios and be a 20% boost in DVOA. Okay, well, that's probably reasonable, but the level of precision you're talking about kind of goes down. The same thing you talk about Philadelphia, how they've dominated all year long, how good they've been. You take Carson Wentz out, and now you go, okay, how do you project that going forward? Are they really still the class of the NFC? You know, we saw them struggle against New York. Go ahead. I like what you said. I mean, what you did, which is something I really like, is if you're going to build simulations, build in simulations with a probability of injury. Why can't yeah. you build that in? I mean, we have historical data on injury rates of quarterbacks under certain types of offenses, and even if you do it on a per-play basis, we can compute those probabilities. Now, I like the way you said it. You put it in your simulation, but it's going to raise the uncertainty dramatically. Yes, and that's something I actually have been working on all year for 530. I was hoping to get it out during the season, but uh, it just didn't come together because there's so much data to go through. Um, the change when you go to a backup quarterback, from the starter to the backup in-game, from the starter to the backup uh, during the week, you know, the first start that backup gets and then subsequent starts that that backup gets. I only chewed through about three, four years worth of data because 
tying all these individual games and figuring out what counts and what doesn't, such as uh, last year with Derek Anderson played the first play of the game for no reason that anyone knew through an interception and went back to the bench. How do we handle that? Because it was a disciplinary. We have no idea, but Derek Anderson technically got to start in that game. So uh, there's stuff to do, but you, you can model the difference between starters and backups, what that fall off is. Like you said, it raises the uncertainty, but we have a better idea for me right now. You know, the way the Patriots are trending um, and what we saw with the Eagles against the Giants, I'd have to take the field. There are so many good teams in the NFC right now. There's, there's, Teams in the NFC are going to get left out that certainly would be strong contenders in the AFC and could be strong contenders in the NFC as well. And you have weird factors like Minnesota. If they're able to clinch home field advantage, they'll have it all the way to and through the Super Bowl. Playing, Skipping the first round and then playing three straight home playoff games for a team that's been one of the strongest in the NFC, very difficult for me to say that you know, Philadelphia or anybody else has an advantage over Minnesota in that environment. Actually, Ty, you bring up something that I hadn't even thought about, which is they may end up being, you just pointed out scenario, they may end up being the first team to play a Super Bowl in their home stadium. Absolutely. It's a very strong possibility, especially if they have home field advantage throughout the playoffs going into it. Well, Ty, I want to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Uh, thanks for all your analysis of the increase in the run in the NFL, which is really fascinating. Also, your increase in penalties. Uh, for, for those of you that want to follow Ty, please go to 538. He uh, publishes article re- uh, frequently. So, Ty, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Absolutely. My pleasure, Eric. Always fun talking with you guys. Great, and have a great holiday. You too. So uh, this has been the first hour of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, We've talked about all kinds of detailed stuff. We've talked about the NBA, obviously. We've talked about Father Time, and according to my producer, Matt Datz, he put up uh, a number of polls, which we'll be reviewing in the 9.30 hour. We have Ben Alomar joining us at the 9 o'clock hour and just after the break from 9 to 9.30. So we'll be talking about all kinds of sports, NBA, NFL, etc. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Please come back and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and one of the four co-hosts here on Wharton Moneyball, along with my friends Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner. I've been running solo this morning for the two-hour show that we have between 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, live, and replayed throughout the week on iTunes and SoundCloud. And, of course, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, and to our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, for being with me this morning. So if you want to join the conversation, you can please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And, of course, we're tweeting heavily today. We put up some polls for you to look at, um, at W Moneyball. So I've always said that one of the great honors of being a host of Wharton Moneyball is I get to talk to people whose work that I read, whose work that I admire, um, who in some ways, if I wasn't a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, I would want his or her job. And I'm fortunate to have one of those people uh, joining me on the show today, Ben Alomar. Uh, Ben is the director of sports analytics at ESPN. He's the author of Sports Analytics, a guide for coaches, managers, and other decision makers. Um, he's got his undergraduate degree in economics from Minnesota and his Ph.D. from UC Santa Barbara. He's worked for two of the great franchises in the NBA, the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And, of course, as I mentioned, he's currently the director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. So, Ben, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you again for joining us. 
Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Eric. So, Ben, I want to start with something I just noticed in your bio. While it's a competing school, if you'd like, in a number of ways, um, it mentions in my notes that you're going to be a lecturer at Columbia University beginning in 2017. Could you tell us uh, what that is and what you're going to be doing there and um, whether you're willing to hop on a train down to the Wharton School? Because as the chair of a couple of departments here, we've got plenty of space for you. But could you tell us what you're going to be doing at Columbia? Yeah, so I've been teaching at Columbia in the, uh, they have a sports management program and I, they have an analytics, sports analytics track in that program and I teach the, uh, basically the, the first class in the analytics track. It's, uh, about sports analytics for, for managers basically. Teaching, you know, talking to students about how to, you know, the importance of analytics, some of the, some of the tools, but mostly about using the, using tools and, and, and how you can use analytics to influence decisions in a sports context. Well, let me go back. If, and obviously these are ones that you can talk about. Maybe they're in the past. You've obviously, you're one of those people that obviously is working for ESPN now, but you work for actual companies. Like, you know, we could consider the Oklahoma City Thunder a company, the Cleveland Cavaliers a company. Um, I always joke, I spent five years at DuPont. I was actually using statistics for real business decisions. Um, one that you can talk about, can you talk about an example of where you think statistics and analytics had a real impact on whether it was an in-play call or someone that was drafted or just a management approach and style? Uh, I mean, there, there are a variety over, over time. I would say, you know, sort of the most impactful one uh, came actually pretty early in my career with the Thunder when we were talking about the Russell Westbrook draft. And, um, it, you know, we were really, it was, you know, we, I started with these projection models, projecting players, you know, college players into the NBA. And that's really how I got my start in the NBA. And, you know, but Russell was different because he was, we were projecting, he was playing shooting guard in college mostly, and we wanted him to play point guard. And so we had to create a whole new, um, you know, idea, concept of what it was, you know, from, from what he did in college, could he actually play point guard in the NBA? Uh, and so that required collecting a lot of new data uh, and creating a model of um, looking at when you know point guards increase value when they make the pat when they make passes to shooters and how much value they create by making passes to shooters. And in that model, we measured you know compared to his draft class, like Derrick Rose was the best in his draft class at that measure that we could collect data on. He was second. And so, uh, and, you know, he was sort of in the neighborhood of, you know, some high-level NBA point guards. And so we, you know, using that, now this, that wasn't, you know, at all the uh, deciding factor, I would say, but it was one of those things that um, Sam Presti was able to lean on and say, okay, yes, what I, what I, you know, this player who I love because of his competitiveness and his, his athleticism and in college, his commitment to defense, um, we think he can. This gives me some more evidence to suggest that yes, he can do what we want him to do in the NBA. So that helps me make that decision, which at the time was thought to be a significant reach. Yeah, it's a great example, and uh, the reason I like it is because, as you said, let's imagine you're saying he's going to play point guard. Well, you have no direct data of that, and so yep. now that's where I'd love your thoughts on this. That's where statistic and models, statistics and models come in, because when you you know you can't just be a brute force empiricist because there is no brute force empiricism. Right, and and so it, it really is uh, at that point it's discussing with the people who really know the field um, what it is. Uh, to be a point guard. And so, you know, we, you know, we had three weeks to just get something done. <laughs> you know, we're crunching into the draft. Uh, but um, what we settled on was this, this concept. One of the most important skills that we needed to know if he could do was increase value with his, make the right pass. Uh, and, and, you know, we had to sort of turn that sort of concept into a 
you know, a, a quantifiable, you know, uh, definition, uh, collect the data and then and run the analysis on it. So, yeah, it was um, it is a, a, a really sort of a unique situation that was a great uh, application of the uh, of statistics. So let me let me now transition to more to your broadly to your role at ESPN. So let me just start with some very basic questions. So sure. how many people are there? in the, let's call it the analytics function at ESPN? Are we talking about five people, 50 people, 200 people? I mean, how big an <laughs> enterprise is it? So my sports analytics team uh, is eight people. Um, and we, we've grown. So I, I've been here for three years. When I got here, there were four, and now we're eight. Uh, and um, hopefully we're going to continue to grow. But that's, that's just the sports analytics team. There are other folks in ESPN that do various levels of analytics um, and there's you know somewhat of a, a larger group but sort of the highest level sports analytics skill is, is concentrated in my team and what would you say is the primary responsibility of that team is it I mean a lot of people say well I assume a large part of it is to support people that go on air but are there other parts that you guys are doing like longer like let's think of it as an R&D function you guys are an R&D function you guys do research is it mostly short-term stuff that you're doing or is there short-term medium long-term and and you know kind of what does that mix look like so our main goal is to create our, our main purpose is to create tools that can be automated and run and support content across all of ESPN platforms. So we try. There's very rarely something that we do that's just sort of a one-off kind of thing. Um, we have you know internal tools that allow people to dive into our, the analysis that we do on a daily basis. So you know we'll have you know at the NBA season we have a, the Basketball Power Index. Uh, we run massive simulations every day, to, uh, and people can dive into those to look at playoff probabilities, chances to win different games, chances to win 14 straight, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can get out of our metrics. So it's not new stuff that we have to do every day. When these new novel questions come up, the data is already there for them to dive in and try and get those. And that's not just for people on air. It's for people on digital. It's for, you know people at 538, at the undefeated, you know, at every ESPN platform there is. They have access to what we do, and we try and push it to everybody we can. It's a, first of all, uh, congratulations on that because I um, I always say that's what professors do for a living. We don't solve single problems; we solve problems that can be applied broadly, and that's what it sounds like. Well, given your PhD background, it's not surprising <laughs> that that is the way you think about it. Like, why solve the same problem a hundred times when it can be solved once? Um, yep. But one of the things you mentioned, one of the words you mentioned, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Is you use the word automated? So. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will say, like, isn't this the danger of statistics? Like, you know, how can statistics be made automated? Isn't it a blend of art? I, I'm with you, by the way, but I just, I'm just trying to play a counterpoint. Isn't it a blend sure. of art and science? And can you really automate something? Or is that where you can end up getting some ridiculous answer out of a model that is like, there's no <laughs> way you can put every context and every variable in it? Um, I mean, to a certain extent, that's true. You're never going to get every bit of context and everything Put into your model. You, you just not. But um, what you can do is create models that run in automated fashion, do these simulations that are really, really uh, accurate. So, you know, the recent example for us is uh, in the in the BPI, we have you know the total errors are, are not strong <laughs> right now in the BPI. I mean, uh, they are right now. Um, we have the Cavaliers sixth in BPI, and we have when you look out a little bit in the you know chances to you know be the nba champion you know they're pretty far down the list so 
you know, right now we have like the, the Celtics and Raptors are significantly have higher probabilities of being the champions than the Cavaliers. Now, most fans will look at that and say, that's just ridiculous. You know, uh, and, 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 you know, the, there's, there's no, you know, you don't understand LeBron and kind of that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, the, on the counterpoint, one, our model has actually been more accurate than the Vegas line so far this year. So we're pretty happy with that. Uh, and two, the Cavaliers are terrible on defense. They terrible. The They're offense. awful. Yeah. They've got one of the best offenses in the league. And LeBron is probably the best player in the league. Uh, every time he wants to be, um, and but they're so bad on defense. Teams don't just suddenly become good enough defenders to to win championships. Um, and so, while on the surface we often get results that seem odd, that seem you know that, that people point to us and say this is crazy, this is you know whatever. But um, you know when you dig in and when you just take go to the just a little bit, dig a little bit into it, you see well, okay, well that 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 makes sense. I may not agree with you. I may still think that the Cavaliers are the best team in the East, but I can understand that. That makes sense to me. So how do you – I'm going to build on something you've said. Um, You mentioned something. How about the possibility – um, how do you do this? Let's talk about a more general problem. We could focus on the NBA and the Cavs, but that's what made me think about it. How about the possibility that the data we're observing in the regular season is not the same kind of data we'll see when they need to flip the switch? Who even talked about this? So how about the possibility that in some sense, whether you want to call it non-stationarity or whether yeah. you want to call it they're, as you're an economist, they're endogenously playing to the level that they need to play. And so yep. we're not observing a random sample of their performance. We're seeing a just good enough performance and they'll save their energy for the defense when they need it how do you how do you just in general as an economist as a statistician how do you think about that as a possibility that this is data but it's not the right data for the forecast you need to make and and that's absolutely true the playoffs are different in the nba just you know forget the effort level you're playing the same team multiple times so everybody gets to concentrate on you so like that that's just a fundamentally different situation uh, than you have a re- in the regular season. So, but yes, and then you have particularly the older teams tend to not try as hard during the regular season, uh, and so yeah, yeah. So there's a problem there. So our approach so far to solve that problem is we have a different playoff model, and we have some additional variables that are baked into our playoff model that account basically look at age and, and playoff experience. We found that teams that have playoff, you know, lots of previous playoff experience tend to increase their level of play significantly in the playoffs. Now, when you go back to, you know, like last year's Cavs, everybody's talking about, well, they're going to flip the switch, they're going to flip the switch. Well, they did. They got better in the playoffs. Just not that much better. <laughs> you know, they got, they got better, you know, good enough on defense to get to the finals through a fairly weak East. But the Warriors also flipped the switch and got a lot better. And they were so much better going into that finals. It, it, you know, we... We were pretty confident saying that the, the uh, that series wasn't going to go past uh, five games, uh, you know, uh, going into it because of the, the difference. The, the, the Cavaliers, even after flipping the switch, weren't anywhere near what the Warriors were. So, Ben, you mentioned two things. This is, by the way, uh, first of all, we're we're joined by Ben Alomar. Ben is the director of sports analytics at ESPN, the author of Sports Analytics: A Guide for Coaches, Managers, and Other Decision Makers. He's had, uh, besides his PhD in economics from UC Santa Barbara, he's held uh, roles at the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Cleveland Cavaliers. If you have a question for Ben, please join us here at one eight four four Warden. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at SiriusX. 
SiriusXM.com. So, uh, so, Ben, I have two questions based on what you just said. One is something that we I talk about a lot as a, I consider myself a mathematical social scientist, if you'd like, um, the idea of effect size. So you mentioned the Cleveland Cavaliers got better. But it's not that much better. So that's what I, the first thought that came to my mind is, so how many, quote unquote, whether it's BPI rating points or points, did they become better? Because that's what I always say to someone. Someone says, oh, it's a statistically significant difference. Okay, but it's worth half a point. And that's not going to get them anywhere near where Golden State is. So how much better do teams flip the switch in the playoffs? And, you know, would you rather just have one better player than the flipping the switch, which has a larger effect? Um, so, you know, flip for the, uh, I, I'm relying on my memory, which is a really bad thing to do really. But, um, last year, you know, going in, they, their defense, I think their defense improved about a point, maybe a point and a half in the playoffs. Um, which is, you know, that, that's a, that's a, that's a big jump. Uh, but it's not big enough to like their, their defense wasn't even, you know, uh, was not in the playoffs, wasn't as nearly as good as the Warriors defense during the regular season. The Warriors defense got better during the playoffs. So, um, you know, the, in terms of the, the effect that they're, they're, they're big, they got better um, just in, in there in that particular context where you have to get better to be able to compete with the Warriors. They weren't anywhere close to it. I think we might uh, argue this year, based on the Cavaliers' data, they may need to get 10 points better on defense to be competitive with some of the really good teams out West. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, just overall, we had the, their rate is a three, three points better than average team right now comparing their offense and defense, and you got the Warriors at 10. So um, that's uh, it's a pretty big, big jump between the two of them right now. I think it's a great lesson for people uh, here on Wharton Moneyball and also ESPN is, you know, as you said, there's a seven-point gap, and, you know, playing harder defense isn't closing that gap. It might close at one point, maybe, assuming, the, as you said, the Warriors don't get better, but it's always a good thing, in my view, when people do analytics to look at effect sizes and how big an effect are we actually talking about here. Absolutely. I mean, you can't you, – you, in this situation, you simply cannot rely on the fact that they're going to figure it out in the playoffs. This is not – we're we're they're they're one of the worst defenses in the league right now, and it's it's not it has to get better significantly before they get to the playoffs. One other thing I want to build on: you mentioned that uh, you know more experienced teams tend to uh, get better in the playoffs. It made me think of two related questions. One is um, when you guys fit statistical models, I assume you allow for the possibility of nonlinearities. Like for example, one could imagine with age, um, you know, let's put Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Dr. J out there. They got a lot of experience, but they're probably not going to do too well today. So, you know, whether you want to model this as a parabola with an inverted U, whether you guys are doing spline fits, whether you guys are possibly even doing, you know, um, random forests and tree-like models. So how do you guys build in non-linearities into models? Um, so that's a really good question. Uh, I, and I think that it's um, one of those that I would uh, I would punt to the people on my team, honestly, to, to give you the, the, the specifics on it. I know that we, you know, these are these are important issues that we definitely deal with uh, because, as you say, like the age is good to a point. <laughs> um, but in, in terms of the, 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 the NBA age uh, model that we, you know, we've got what we have found though is if guys are playing significant minutes and the team is good like that's um you you sort of eliminate the dr j problem right there uh so it's it's less of an issue um and you know if guys are on the downward curve already uh, in terms of the their performance 
that's going to be reflected in the team performance as much as it is going to be in the sort of this age variable. So um, that, you know, that's, that's one of the way, things that, that is nice about that particular situation where it's not quite as complicated as, as a, a true you know, aging curve that we use uh, in, in, for example, our quarterback model when, where we're looking at um, uh, in, our, in our football power index where we actually do an aging curve uh, for quarterbacks when we swap quarterbacks in and out of the of that mile when they get injured. So I have, uh, this is great, I have a thousand questions, but let me ask two follow-up ones. How do you guys think about age? Is age, age, like, you know, I know how old I am, I could I, I guess how old you are, given when you graduated and stuff, but um, do, is age, age, or is age minutes? How do you guys think about what makes up an age curve? Well, age is really interesting because you have two uh, two things going on there that are they're highly correlated, right? You have um, sort of Age, which is by itself bad, because as you get older, you get less athletic. Uh, but at the same time, it, you also have experience, which is good, because you're better at making decisions on the field and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it, it is a complicated situation. You have to try and disentangle sort of minutes from the wear and tear of those minutes. Um, and we tend to start with age. Uh, and then when you get to the extremes, like you know, right now Tom Brady is you know uh, sort of blowing out the age curves right now. Um, uh, it, you, you do have to one, you have to think about you know what is it that is creating? Is he anomaly an anomaly, or is there you know for for quarterbacks they tend to sort of fall off this cliff right around the, the age he's at. Um, so is that coming for him, uh, or is he somehow going to find this uh, you know a gradual path down? Or is he going to somehow sustain his current level of expertise? I, I it's, um, you know, it, it would be surprising if he did. But in terms of the um, sort of the idea of trying to get at um, differences between experience and and the the health effects of the, the physical impact of age, uh, you know, we have the sort of we have variables that look specifically at experience. And some, and then age on top of that to sort of help try and separate those two things out a little bit. So Ben, I have to, I have to push you on this one point a little bit, just because if I don't, I'm sure I'll be getting tweets about this for the rest of my <laughs> life. They'll be saying you had the director of sports analytics at ESPN on, and he mentions Tom Brady, and you didn't get a sharp prediction from Ben Alomar about how great Tom Brady is going to be for how long. So let me, I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. I'm sure we'll tweet about it. Whatever you say, be careful because I'm going to tweet about it. Wharton Moneyball is going to tweet about it. ESPN may tweet about this but if you had to guess is Tom Brady breaking the age curve and the reason I ask also is I don't know if you listened to the first half hour of our show you were probably busy doing your real job this morning that's exactly the topic I talked about was breaking the age curve and it was watching the Pittsburgh New England game this last weekend that made me think about it and we actually put up a poll on at, or, at W Moneyball about who has broken the age curve the most in the NFL the NBA MLB etc what are your thoughts on Tom Brady? Can he do this for, as you know, the data is irrefutable about what happens at his age. So yeah. what, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I have a hard time saying that there's not a, he's not headed right towards the cliff. I don't know exactly where that, how many more games is left before that cliff hits, but it sure, it, it, it just doesn't seem like he's, you know, like, like any, anybody can continue to do this because nobody really has. Um, you know, he's got a QBR so far this season of 70, which is uh, fourth in the league. So uh, he's playing great. And so it's always, you know, sort of uh, uh, precarious to say, well, he's about done because he doesn't look like he's about done. But, um, you know, 
regardless of all the sort of the Brady Way stuff that he's he's doing, like nobody else has been able to do it. So I can't imagine he's got more than another season in here uh, playing at a high level. It just um, it, the he, the drop off has got to be coming. He's taken so much abuse over his. He's had injuries. He's had the hits. You know, um, at some point, is the body is just going to stop producing at the level that he's producing at. Did it surprise you then? And then I want to talk about some more general topics at ESPN, but maybe just one follow-on question, that they traded the greatest quarterback in now the history <laughs> of the San Francisco 49ers. Forget Joe Montana and Steve Young and all hey, the John Brody. Sure. Um, they now have the, the 49ers have an undefeated quarterback in Jimmy exactly. Garoppolo. Did, did it there surprise you? quarterbacks who have lost in the NFL and there are quarterbacks that have not lost in the NFL. Garoppolo's in the not-lost category. He's so. not lost. He's And absolutely he's not lost. <laughs> <laughs> and he may not lose the rest of the season. Um, so he, what did you – did you think, just from an analytics perspective, if you – you know, let's put you back in your days where you were working for the yeah. Thunder and the Cavs. If you, I mean, yeah. would you have gone to ownership and said, look, you know, here's what the analytics is saying. I know that, you know, we have a tough situation here, but dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I, I, I was very surprised by that trade. I, I really, you know, the, the, only, the only – the part about that trade that sort of – uh, makes is less surprising is that this is something that Belichick has done over the years, uh, and he's traded players high that he doesn't want. You know, he's not that, that aren't going to be worth it to him. And and a lot of the quarterbacks that he's traded have not gone on to really produce at the levels they produced when he was they were with the Patriots. So at some level, you want to say, well, maybe they know something um, uh, that that, that uh, the 49ers haven't learned just yet. Um, I don't know, but given if you take the um, you know for you know fact that Garoppolo is a good starting NFL quarterback, yeah, it's um, it's really surprising to me that you would let you would you would move him with Brady, you know, who's got to be done soon. Yeah, that would be my take as well. So I want to ask you now a more broad question. Um, since, you know, you obviously cut your teeth as an economist and then you've worked in basketball, obviously now you have a broad analytics responsibility. Um, how do you, is, you know, I've always had this theory, but maybe so, I've never worked in your industry. Is math, math, like when you know math and you know statistics, can you apply analytics to kind of any sport? Like, you worked for the Thunder and the Cavs. Could you just as easily have worked for the Eagles and the 49ers? Could you just as easily be working right now for Serena Williams? Could you just as easily be working for Man City? In other words, if you know data, you know statistics, you know analytics, do you have to have deep substantive knowledge of the sport, or can you kind of get your teeth in there? You'll learn the context as you need. Data's data, math, math, models are models. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so that's an interesting question, and and I think that it, and you know for me you know when I got to the Thunder for example I was I, I did not know nearly enough basketball uh, and I but I was in a situation where I was you know got to talk to scouts and, and coaches and I learned a ton as I was building models and, and the models improved uh, significantly as I learned the sport and so I would say it's it's really helpful to have deep field knowledge. Um, and, and for me, anytime I'm hiring somebody to the team, I, you know, I don't hire anybody who, or, or recommend to other teams, anybody who doesn't have an understanding of what's happening in sports analytics. So if you tell me, for example, that you're desperate to, to get into the NBA and work in sport, NBA basketball analytics, and you haven't read Dean Oliver's, uh, basketball on paper, that's a signal to me that you're not actually serious. Um, so 
I, I do think that there is a um, you, you do have to know the field of sports analytics. You do it do it is really helpful to know the sport, at least have a good working knowledge of the sport. You don't you, you know you don't have to have the knowledge that a coach does of the sport to, to be effective, but you have to be uh, the the less you know about the sport, the more you have to be able to learn the sport from the the people who are expert at it, um, and, and be in a situation where you can get get that knowledge because it really improves what you can do with the data. That I completely agree, and it's in. I'm, and both uh, my producer Matt Datz and I were nodding when you said you wish, in some sense, you didn't know that much about the NBA when you started with the Thunder. But I like the I liked your answer, which is that once once you did, your models improved greatly. I think that's a that's, that's a great point. Yeah, it was uh, a, a, a real learning experience every time. It was one of the great things to, to actually go and sit in you know, the. The, the, the rooms as we were you know, leading up to the draft and have the scouts watch film and just listen to what they were interested in, what they were talking about, why they like this player and that player. and I could go and test and say, yeah, that matters. That actually does matter. Or, you know what, that doesn't matter. I can, uh, we, we can disregard that. And um, it, was, it was a great experience for me. Yeah, it was the way I would describe it uh, in my own life is the job I had before joining the Wharton School as a professor. I was at the someplace, it's going to make a lot of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball cringe, I was at the Educational Testing Service in Princeton. You know it well. <laughs> and my job was to do statistical research for the company. And so I would sit at lunch, go to meetings, and listen to people say, boy, I wish our educational tests could do this and that. And I'd be like, hmm. That's kind of interesting. And so I knew much less about educational tests when I started there, and I'll use your language. Um, the models I fit got a lot better the more I sat in on meetings and listened. Yeah. No, that field knowledge really can advance what you, your, your, the way you think about the, the data that's in front of you. So I have one last line of questions. Um, when I was thinking about this, you know, how do you guys decide both internally, let's call it the people that are on air, and also us, the fans, like how much appetite we have. Like I'll use an, exa- I'll use an example that I just talked to you about two minutes ago. I was talking about nonlinearities and spline fits. Now, to you and me, that means something. <laughs> but, I mean, could you ever imagine, pick your favorite ESPN announcer on air. You don't have to mention the name, but pick your favorite, even the most sophisticated ESPN yeah. announcer on air. Do you ever see she or he talking about you know, we fit some nonlinear, nonlinear function, and this is what the age curve is going to look like. Do you ever see an announcer on air ever saying, you know what, that Garoppolo trade, that was pretty dicey given the age curve for, I mean, how sophisticated are on-air personalities and how sophisticated are us, the fans, getting, and how does that influence the kind of work you're doing? Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. It's just like, you know, working at, at a team – uh, fans as a group, broadcasters as a group, writers as a group, uh, everybody. There's this just huge distribution of, uh, of interest and engagement and, and ability to absorb it and translate it. Because that's the, the hardest thing for the, the announcers to do is to take these really complex things and translate them to an audience, you know, in you know, 10 seconds uh, that um, – that a broad audience can, 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 will engage with and understand and get the story that's involved. Um, because, you know, all the, the techniques and the math and everything, it, while it's fascinating to a very small segment of that population, the vast majority of that population is, not only doesn't care, would hate to hear about the math that's involved. Um, but they, the stories involved that they come out of the math, that's the part that, they, that everybody can engage with. And so that's, you know, finding the, um, the, 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 talent that really is interested in, in learning that and being able to translate that that's it's, it's a tremendous skill you know we have 
we, I have a writer on my staff, and that's his entire job is to take the, the work that our entire team does and write stories on it and really translate this complex stuff into things that yeah you stole my question that was going to be my exact question for you whether you have a right no i was going to that was going to be my question for you whether you have a writer on your staff that translate complex issues to digestible and interesting content yeah so seth walters is on on, is part of my team and he writes so we have you know if you go to espn.com slash analytics there's a whole uh set of uh of articles that written by people across espn but a lot by seth and uh, you know, he does a great job of turning this stuff into things that really can make sense to anybody. So in the last few minutes that I have with you, I was just I was just wondering, how do you see the uh, playoffs turning out? Let, let's talk about the NFL. We'll we'll get you back on as we get closer to the NBA playoffs. <laughs> I know you just recently at ESPN, there was a recent article about um, offensive uh, points constructed, expected points added per game on offense and defense. And, you know, the mm-hmm. four people that aren't the four teams that aren't Pareto dominated, if you'd like, by anybody appear to be <laughs> the Patriots, who are great on offense, not great on defense, the Saints, yeah. who are kind of good on offense and okay on defense, the Eagles, who are kind of okay on both, and then shockingly, the Jaguars, who aren't horrible on offense and are great on defense, are we going to, are one of those four teams, is it the Jaguars, Eagles, Saints, or Patriots, is uh, is that the NFL champ, or do you have something else in mind? So our, our top four in odds to win the Super Bowl right now, Patriots at 27%, Eagles at 23%, Vikings at 16 and Steelers at 11 Hmm. And what's your what's your personal pick? What's your personal pick? If you had to pick right now, are you going with uh, you know? Are you going with? It's hard to pick against. You know, it's one of those theorems in sports. Don't bet against Belichick and Brady. And you <laughs> yeah. know, and also could uh, the other thing I'd like to hear your thoughts on. I talked about this in the first half hour. How much leverage, change in probability did that non touchdown for the Steelers have? on what your forecasted probabilities would have been. Because the Steelers would have been the one seed, the Patriots possibly even falling below the Jaguars as the, to the three seed. How, how did you guys see that? Yeah, that was a pretty big leverage game. Um, we, uh, Brian Burke, who's on our team, tweets out the leverage every week before the games so you can see which are the biggest, most important games of the week. Um, I don't remember exactly how big the leverage was for, for, the, for that game, but it, it was pretty significant. Uh, particularly around the Super Bowl. So you like the Patriots? Patriots are your pick? I, I do. I mean, I just, uh, you know, the Eagles is, uh, yeah. Having grown up in D.C., I just assume the Eagles are going to blow it at some point. Um, and sorry. That's o- that's okay. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I, so, yeah, I, I think it's hard. It's hard to, if you're going to pick a, a, you know, a likely team. If you have to pick one team, it's hard to not pick the Patriots at this point. Well, Ben, I'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Ben's the director of sports analytics of ESP, at ESPN and the author of Sports Analytics, a guide for coaches, managers, and other decision makers. Uh, you can read all of Ben's stuff on ESPN. Of course, you can follow him at, at Ben Alamar ESPN. Ben, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Great. So this has been the first three quarters of the show. Um, we've had Great guests, both Ty Schalter and Ben Alomar joining me here for the last hour. Uh, in the last half hour of the show, I'll talk about lots of other stuff that has caught my eye on sports and, of course, our Wharton Moneyball matchup in the NFL. So please join us right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. We're here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. 
And if you want to join the conversation this morning, you can join us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And my sincere thanks for both uh, Ty Schalter from 538 to be on this morning from the 830 to 9 o'clock hour, and one of my favorite interviews of all time with Ben Alomar, uh, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN on in the last half hour. And you can follow him at, at Ben Alomar. ESPN, which I do, and uh, read lots of his content. Um, So first thing I wanted to do in the last half hour here is to go over the content from our poll. Um, We put up the poll, as you remember, for baseball, basketball, football, and golf, and here's the results of the poll of our Twitter poll at at WMoneyball. All of you, the fans, have voted Nolan Ryan to be the uh, highest or most uh, age-break-the-curve person in baseball. I happen to agree with that. He was at 64% with the rest of the probability going to Ted Williams. So that means there's a bunch of middle-aged guys like me or middle-aged guys and girls like me who remember the Nolan Ryans. Probably most of us don't remember Ted Williams playing, but um, either way, it's good to see. Um, For basketball, the combination of Stockton and Malone uh, won at 40%, followed up by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, in football, not surprisingly, maybe because of recency, we have Tom Brady at 63%. And in golf, we kind of have a three-way tie between Tom Watson, Bernard Longer, and Jack Nicholas, all at 30%. I think all of those would be great choices. So besides having the age curve um, uh, prepared for the show, I actually thought of some other things that I've always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to be on air and do this. And since um, I'm here by myself today and um, I'm looking forward to having my co-host, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner back in the next couple weeks, um, I thought maybe my producer, Matt Datz, and I would do what I'll call, maybe we'll make this a regular at some point, maybe every month on the show I'll call the over-under segment. And so I'm going to give uh, Matt a some over-unders and I'm going to ask him, will this individual, male or female, win more or less than the over-under number? So, Matt, you ready to roll? Yep. Ready to roll. Okay. Um, you can obviously see in the order that I think. Let's start with Tiger Woods. Is he over or under 0.5 majors? Under. Under. Okay. So, in your belief, Tiger Woods will never win another major? No. Okay. So, let me. I'm going to try to, I don't want to say refute, but what I'm going to do is at each one, I'm just going to give a little bit of data. So, in the healthy Tiger Woods era, now we don't know if Tiger Woods is healthy, in the healthy Tiger Woods era, he won 14 majors, let's say, in 15 years of play, something like that, maybe even less than that, maybe 11 years of play. So he won 14 majors out of, let's say, 50 or 60. He was winning them at a 25% rate. So you believe, because of the time of the layoff, the injury, how great the other golfers have been, that he'll be, like, even if he were at 5%, let's say he were down to 5%, if he plays for 10 more years and 40 majors, 0.5 times 40 is 2, his expected number of major wins would be 2. So even given all that analytics, Matt, you're still going with under. Yeah, I don't think there's enough uh, enough events, you know, not enough. Uh, four for years, not not enough for him. There's just too many other guys out there like Spieth and uh, younger golfers that can do it. Okay, so and also in your view, maybe 5% is just an overestimate. And you were even pointing out, why do you assume he'll be healthy for another 10 years? And, you know, we're now talking age 42 to 52, so we're not talking 32 to 42. All right, so we're going to go under on Tiger Woods. How about Roger Federer over or under 1.5 more majors? I'm definitely going over. Definitely over. This yeah. is. I just want to be clear. This is the 36-year-old Roger Federer. Yes. The one who was out for six months with a knee injury. So you're going over. Yeah, I think the his adaptation of only playing these big majors, sitting out the French, 
I think this is the way to go, and I think that he's definitely going to get over 1.5. Now, let me, I'm just, again, we're just going to talk about this from a statistical perspective here. So you agree he's not going to play the French ever again. Yeah, I don't think there's any need. Right. He won the French once, fortunately, the year that uh, Nadal was beaten by Robin Soderling. Thankfully, yes. And so he's won the French once. Um, So he's going to play three majors. Let's even say he plays three majors a year Mm -hmm. for the next. Let's even pretend he's the greatest age break the curver of all time, Mm -hmm. and he plays nine more majors over the next three years at a competitive level. Yes. So age 36-ish, 37-ish, 38-ish. You think he's going to win two of nine of those majors, at least? Yeah, and I think a factor is the fact that um, the competition, there's not and there's not a lot of depth in the you know there's Djokovic, Murray and Nadal but other than that some of these younger guys they haven't really put their foot in the door yet. Okay. So in some sense you that's it's interesting that you've brought up that distinction between the Tiger Woods where you might list 20 or 25 golfers and actually um Cade talks about this uh you know with Rufus Peabody that golf is the you know you really have to take a large fraction of the field to get to even 50% probability of winning. I think we agree if you gave me Nadal, Djokovic, Federer and and Murray, we would take that four over the field in every major. Yeah, those guys are going to be in the like, shoe-ins for the semis or quarters each each major. Okay, let's go with another one. How about Serena Williams over or under 2.5 more majors? I think over just because, of, like like I said, with the, the men's lack of depth in the in the field, lack of competition. Obviously, there's some with Sharapova coming back off the suspension. She's, you know, a force to be reckoned with, but I think there's just not enough depth uh, for her not to get more than 2.5. What about the probability that at some point Serena just decides, you know, just like I talked about with Ty Schalter and Ben Alomar about, you know, why don't you integrate in injuries? What about the probability? I mean, of course, Serena could get injured, although she's not been horribly injury prone in her career. What mm-hmm. about the probability that she just says, I'm done? Yeah, you have to factor that in. Um, but then you know, I also factor in she could go to a, a Fed diet where she only plays the ones she thinks she can win. Um, so there's also that you could, could factor in as well. Okay, so you're you're confident she's going to play enough majors to get over three more. Enough winnable, yeah. Enough uh, winnable ones. Yes. Okay, let's go to LeBron James, zero point five titles. Ooh, that's tough. Um, They're all meant to be tough. I these know. aren't random people and random numbers. I'm trying to make them so that you you know these are hard and discriminating choices. I think a lot of the factor is where he goes next year. Um, if he does, if he leaves Cleveland, if he goes to Houston, which there's been a little bit of rumbling about, I think that if him in Houston, then I think it's definitely over. Uh, but depending where he goes next year, it's tough. And it's also without injury, the Warriors are always going to be the favorite for and without them breaking up for the next four or five years, which would be his where he can make the most impact. Yeah, one of the things, by the way, just to talk about breaking up the Warriors, one of the things my son has pointed out is he, he and I had a lot of time over the weekend. We were He was at a U.S. Open squash tournament, played very well. One of the things we were talking about is, and, and 538 has written about this, if the Warriors want to keep their big four, let's call it, you know, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and Draymond Green, mm-hmm. their salary in two years may be $400 million. Yeah. And the the luxury tax of these owners they gotta they gotta pay they gotta pay up if they want to keep this team together. But four hundred million dollars. I know that's a big number. All right, how about the next one? How about Tom Brady over under one point five NFL titles more? I'm gonna go. 
over just because you can't bet against Tom and Belichick. Um, so you and think, I think they win it this year. You think they win it this year? So then you're then you're then in your view, it's the rest it's of only his career. The rest of his career, will he win one more? Yeah. Well, so you think there's a chance he could retire as a seven-time Super Bowl champion? Yes. Wow. All right. Well, Shane <laughs> what do you Jensen. Think? What up- do you think? No. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, you have, by the way, this is a good point. Let me review, since these are my last of my over-unders here, let me just review. Um, You said Tiger Woods uh, under 0.5 majors. I'm going to go the over. Um, I've been a Tiger Woods believer forever, and I was very encouraged But what I saw at the, I understand it was the fluffy Tiger Hero Woods challenge. That he owns, yes. That he owns, etc. But that doesn't mean the golf ball goes in the hole because he owns it. Correct. Um, But I'm going over. Uh, Roger Federer, um, I'm going over as well. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm, I'm going over. Serena Williams, 2.5. It's just a matter of whether Serena Williams wants to. Exactly. If Serena Williams wants to win eight more majors, she'll win eight more majors. She's, in my view, the greatest champion of all time in any sport. And so I have no more admiration than I can have for Serena Williams. If Serena Williams wants to play five more years and win almost half the majors she plays, Serena Williams will win that. So I'm, I'm going over. LeBron, I love your analysis. I would have gone if he stays with Cleveland Zero. Yeah. But if he, by the way, another option is if he moves to the, how do you like it if he moves to the Philadelphia 76ers? Imagine. I would love, yeah, I know. As a season ticket holder. <laughs> I know that. But I'm saying, don't, if you said there's five years and he's playing the next five years with Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, mm-hmm. Markel Fultz, whoever our number one or two, number one pick is next year, Covington, Sarich, etc. I think I like them at over 0.5 if you put them on the Sixers for five more seasons. Yeah, I think the two, <clears throat> the three big factors there would be Ben Simmons developing some sort of a shot, um, as well as Joel Embiid's health, as well as the Celtics. I mean, the Celtics without Hayward this year, you know, they're going to get him back next year, and we could see that could be Sixers-Boston if LeBron comes a rivalry for a long time. And then, of course, the last one, Tom Brady. I, I mean, again, I'm only putting... Let's, I'll even use Ben Alomar and ESPN's power index numbers. They have a 25% chance, essentially, to win the Super Bowl this year. There's just, it's too far. Your prediction of over 1.5, even if I take the... Let's even say it's 0.25 for the next four years. So that gives me expected number of one. Just two is too many standard errors <clears throat> away from an expected number. It's just that, a theorem. It's the, it's the Belichick-Brady theorem. Yeah, I'll go with the math, and you can go with the Belichick-Brady theorem. Uh, but either way, so either way, uh, Matt, uh, thank you for playing over-under with me. Uh, I'm going to continue I'm gonna continue pushing for us to do an over-under segment. Uh, but thank you for playing, and hopefully our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball enjoyed it. So this is Eric Bradlow, uh, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. We're on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you want to uh, follow us, please follow us on Twitter at, at @wmoneyball. And if you have a question, uh, please call us at one eight four four Warden one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So even though I'm by myself today, that doesn't mean we don't have time for my favorite segment of the week on Wharton Moneyball, the Wharton Moneyball matchup. I got to let that music play for a little while. As everybody knows, there's no one that loves the NFL more than Eric Bradlow and the Bradlow household. It's my favorite time of the year. Um, So many important games going on in the NFL now. Still a lot to be decided. As a matter of fact, I don't think anything is locked 
I mean, in terms of we know some teams are in the playoffs, but we don't really know who the one seed is, the two seed is. I mean, there's lots of lots of things that are open uh, right now. So let me just talk about a few games that have kind of caught my eye this week, kind of some very important games in the NFL. Um, so number one is actually a game that wouldn't have been that interesting and maybe is only marginally interesting is the Seahawks at the Cowboys. Now, given the drubbing that the Seahawks took last week at the hands of the Rams, um, I would have thought this game would have been super competitive. Maybe it will be super competitive. Ezekiel Elliott, Zeke Elliott is coming back for the Cowboys. So um, I like the Cowboys in that game. It looks like the Cowboys are a five-point favorite at home against the Seahawks. Um, and I'm not, I hope I'm not just overreacting to the Seahawks' awful play last week against the Rams. I think the Cowboys are going to run the ball. I think the defense of the Seahawks, with all the injuries they have, um, are, are in bad shape. I think the Cowboys, um, maybe it relates to what Ty Schalter was talking about, about the increase in the run game. I see the Cowboys running the ball and running the ball some more and running the ball some more. So I like the Cowboys over the Seahawks. The Cowboys aren't entirely dead in the playoffs, although the the Falcons win over my Buccaneers did not help the Cowboys. Um, But I see the Cowboys as a uh, possibility in that game there. Another game which caught my eye, which is of no interest, um, except it does influence the playoffs, is... The Jaguars at the 49ers. Now, who would have thought by week 16 of the NFL season, I would have been talking about the Jaguars and the 49ers. But that's, I think the Jaguars and the 49ers is a really interesting game. Um, As I talked about with Ben Alomar, we have the undefeated Jimmy Garoppolo. The man has never been defeated in the NFL. And the Jaguars, who are obviously playing for a lot, are at the 49ers. And the Jaguars, to me, surprisingly, are only favored by four points in that game. Now, that's a huge game for the Jaguars. There's no guarantee the Steelers are going to win out. The Jaguars could get into the number two seed, and we talked about this in our coin flipping model. Uh, This is kind of a... Uh, this is obviously a important game for the Jaguars, and so um, we'll see. Be very, very interesting to see what happens. I'm actually fortunate. Also, uh, I don't have to do the last seven minutes of Wharton Moneyball by myself. <laughs> uh, my friend and, and co-host at times, uh, Dan Loney from our Knowledge at Wharton show, has come in. He loves doing the Wharton Moneyball matchup with us. You mean you can't carry the last seven minutes by yourself? Oh, I could carry the next two days by myself. I've already done an hour and fifty-three minutes by myself. Well, not by myself. Ty Schalter from five thirty-eight and Ben Alomar from ESPN were on. Now you know what I do every day. Hey, there we we go. That's a a good point. There you go. So I got a few games. I'll throw some games out to you, Dan. I'd love to get your reaction to them. This game actually should have caught my eye first. So Falcons at Saints. Oh, it's going to... And, and and it's in New Orleans. That that is going to be, I think, just a phenomenal game. And I think the Saints are going to win it, uh, points wise. It's I'm not five sure. and a half. The Saints are favored by five and a half. I, I, what I what I saw from the Falcons, and you get you get the the Falcons on short rest, uh, having played on Monday night and having to go to New Orleans. That's when you're when you're the Monday night team and you're also the road team the next weekend. I think that is a bit of a problem right off the bat. And the way that the New Orleans Saints have been playing, and again, the Falcons 
won on Monday night, but weren't exactly the most impressive team in the world. The Buccaneers could have won that game. Absolutely. And so it makes me it makes me lean towards uh, New Orleans on this just because I think they're they're playing very good football right now. I think one of the things also is it's one of those games with huge playoff oh, implications. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if you knew this. Did you know that the Falcons control their own destiny yeah. to win the division because yeah. they play the Saints and, and the Panthers, Panthers the last yep. they went out. Yep. They're 11 and 5. Yep. They're the division winner. And if they don't win either of those games, they could, they could very well be out of the playoffs. They have to go 1-1. One and one. Yep. I've 1-1 one one apparently does guarantee them the yep. playoffs because they have the tiebreaker against everybody. Yep. But 0-2, oh yep. that's when that's why I said the Cowboys are hoping for a loss-loss for the Falcons. And, and that's why I'm hoping for a Cowboys loss tomorrow, uh, or I should say Saturday, against the, uh, against the, the Seahawks. Seahawks. Uh, partly because of that, I don't want to see the Cowboys in the playoffs as an Eagles fan. And secondly, I don't know what that's going to mean for the Eagles if the Cowboys lose in terms of the uh, the entire uh, NFC scenario. Especially if if the Vikings end up losing to the uh, to the Packers. But I don't think that's going to happen since Aaron Rodgers is now on the uh, on the IR. I, I think that's right too, and I, I I I actually agree with that. How about this game? How about I mean I think I know who you think is going to win the game outright. But how about Bills at Patriots? Now, this What's is the spread on it? Eleven and a half. That's I mean, besides it being a big number, besides it yeah. being a big number, um, I mean, both teams are desperate. Both I mean, you say the Patriots aren't no, the Patriots are desperate. They lose any game, they could lose right. the one seed. Right. And the Bills yeah. obviously are in the playoffs right now if it started, but yeah. this loss would be it's not only a conference loss, but a division loss. It would be yeah. crippling. Yeah. I, I don't know if the Bills are gonna have enough to, to win the game, but I definitely think that they could potentially cover that number. I I, I think the Bills are are playing some decent football right now, but there's something about Tyrod Taylor that even though he is really you know he's a scrappy quarterback. I, I don't see him as the type of quarterback that is is able to lead a franchise deep into the playoffs and, and you know be that money guy in a in a big spot. That sounds great. Uh, also, Ben Alomar uh, shared. I see Brian Burke's leverage for this week's game, and we retreated it at W Moneyball. So thanks, Matt. Go. Thanks for pointing that out. That will get us a lot of press. So I got maybe a couple more games in the last minute or two that we have. Yeah. I actually don't know why I didn't see this game from the beginning. Also. Rams at Titans. Yeah, that should be. Now the Rams are favored by six and a half. They by the way, win. which means that means on a neutral field, they'd be a nine and a half yeah. point favorite against the Titans. Well, and, and remember that the Titans haven't exactly played great football as well. But I think part of that is just the fact of of what the Rams did to the Seahawks in Seattle last week. And you get to this time of the year. You want to have a great running game. And what Todd Gurley has done this year for the Rams really speaks volumes. What it, it it's also done is it kind of takes a little bit of the pressure off of Jared Goff. Yeah, I mean, in fact, this was exactly the conversation Ty Schalter from 538 and I had, is that yeah. the rebirth of the running game yep. in the NFL. Which yeah. is, you even see even the great Drew Brees, which you yeah. and I both agree, one of the Pantheon Hall of Fame yeah. quarterbacks. Now they've got Kamura and Ingram. He is He's benefited so much better. He has benefited greatly by that. I mean, he doesn't have to be the quarterback that's expected to throw for 5,000 yards in a season. Well, so maybe in the last 30 seconds we have, I, I, I assume we're both feeling fairly confident about Eagles versus Raiders, although it's no lock at no, nine points. No, oh, no, to, to, right, exactly. And, but remember, it's the West Coast team coming to play East, and it's on Christmas Day. And a night and, game. And the Raiders are out. Of, you know, So there's, there's no motivation. 
situation for the Raiders right now. So I would think that the Eagles and, and the Eagles need to bounce back after not playing defensively. They defensively. Need, to ba- need to bounce back after not playing a great game against the Giants. Well, I'd like to thank you, Dan, for joining me for the Wharton Moneyball matchup segment. I'd like to thank my producer, Matt Datz, for not only producing today's show and getting me prepared, uh, given I was flying solo today, but also playing over under with me today. Thank you for that, Matt's. Matt, uh, thanks, of course, to our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, both for the uplifting music and for helping us run the show on time. So this has been Wharton Moneyball. Some combination of myself, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner are here every Wednesday morning from 8 to 10 Eastern and replayed throughout the week. Until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We'll see you back here on Wharton Moneyball.